the biggest effect, emotional benefit in, in, in my mind is, is knowing someone's out there looking and trying to find her. And that has helped a lot. Families that we help also have gained that, you know, when, when the cops essentially quit looking to know that someone else out there that is taking a shot at it and going to uh, go out and see if they can't find or talk to this one or talk to that one. And just the fact that someone's working on something is a tremendous emotional boost. Helps them get up the next day and, you know, keep going forward with their lives. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Bruce Maitland, the founder and president of Private Investigations for the Missing. Bruce's interest in missing persons cases began abruptly when his 17-year-old daughter, Brianna, went missing. Bruce worked diligently with law enforcement and private investigators to search for Brianna, and in 2018, he founded Private Investigations for the Missing, a nonprofit organization that provides investigative services for loved ones of missing people. The organization was founded with a mission of providing families and other loved ones with qualified expert investigators to work on their loved ones' cases, investigators who could collaborate with law enforcement and could hopefully help locate their missing loved ones or bring some sort of closure. In a time when more than 600,000 people go missing annually in the United States, and a segment of those are not found for long stretches of time, Bruce saw gaps into the approach to searching for missing persons. Due to Brianna's case, the Vermont State Police changed the way that they handle many murder and missing persons cases, including keeping a hold of all vehicles where their missing person was last seen. The police, he has noted, are often overloaded with other cases, and the longer someone goes missing, the less attention their cases get. And generally, while there are limited resources devoted to them, missing persons cases are some of the most difficult and complex to solve. Often families have no idea where to turn. Bruce saw experienced private investigators as a way to close that gap but recognized that many loved ones could not afford to hire them. Private Investigations for the Missing is focused on filling that need at no cost to the loved ones. Young Wa Kim, the mother of Heyman Lee, an 18-year-old whose former boyfriend was convicted of killing and dumping her body in Baltimore, Maryland, once testified, When I die, my daughter will die with me. As long as I live... My daughter is buried in my heart. As difficult as murder is for loved ones, some advocates say that it's almost worse for a brother, a sister, a cousin, a mother, a father, or a friend to be missing. In part, there's no easy way to grieve, in no simple way, as young Joachim put it, to put them in your heart. Today, we're going to discuss the life-altering moment that happens when someone finds out that their loved one is missing, the unique effects of having little to no understanding of what happened to your loved one, and what people who are searching 
for those who they love can do to help their loved ones and help find closure. Here's Brianna's story. Brianna Maitland was a fiercely independent 17-year-old girl who was born in Burlington, Vermont, and grew up on a rural farm with her parents and older brother in East Franklin, Vermont, less than three miles from the Canadian border, closer to Montreal than any other major American city. It's a county with less than 1,300 people, less than 500 households, and less than 350 families. It's a place that people go to to be in nature or near the lake or near the river which flows north and west through Quebec to Lake Champlain. It's a place where people go to feel safe. Brianna, or Brie, as many of her friends called her, was trained in jiu-jitsu. She enjoyed snowboarding, music, and spending time with her friends like so many young girls. So much about her was ordinary yet extraordinary. Her father remembers the first time she plunged on a snow embankment on her own in the sled, her avid love of others, and her love of reading. Brianna was known to be responsible and a caring person. She was that girl in school who would always swing in to protect and come to the aid of that classmate who was being picked on or bullied. Her friends say she had a heart of gold. Once, when a girl attacked Brianna, she refused to use her skills in jiu-jitsu to fight back, according to one of her friends. She was a high school student and worked to support herself and her interests. Friends say she had aspirations for college, although her father says she hadn't decided on what or where. In 2003, she moved away from her parents' farm to attend high school in a different district, and there she lived with one of her closest friends. The day of March 19, 2004, was shaping up to be a good one for Brianna, who was staying in Sheldon, Vermont, a tiny town not far from home. She had passed a math test, the last part of her high school GED exam. Brianna celebrated the success by going shopping with her mother in the town of St. Albans. Later, she stopped to leave a note for her childhood friend in Sheldon before heading to her night shift as a dishwasher at the Black Lantern Inn a restaurant, pub, and hotel 30 miles away in Montgomery, Vermont. She was scheduled to get off work according to the note she left sometime between 10 p.m. and midnight, and she told her friend that she would see her afterwards. But Brianna never made it. Her shift ended at 11.20 p.m., and she walked out the door and vanished without a trace. The next day, her car was found near Montgomery. It was rammed backward into an abandoned wooden home. Witnesses later reported seeing Brianna or the car that night or in the early morning. A man drove by the house between 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. and said the car's headlights may have still been on and he didn't see anyone near the car. A second man drove by between midnight and 12.30 a.m. and recalled seeing a turn signal flashing on the car. Around 4 a.m., 
a former boyfriend of Brianna's, drove past the scene after a night out and thought he recognized Brianna's car, but she was nowhere to be found. The next morning, people driving by saw the scene, a scene so odd that they stopped, took pictures, and called the police. Those people said they saw some loose change, a water bottle, and a bracelet or a necklace on the ground near the car. But she was gone. Almost 20 years later, Brianna is still missing, but her father has not stopped looking for her or the loved ones of others. Hey, Bruce. I just wanted to thank you for uh, joining me. I had heard about your organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, a while ago, um, primarily through podcasters who were talking about how important this work was. And, you know, they were making the point that um, missing persons cases are often some of the most complex cases, even more complex than murders but they're some of the most under-resourced cases. And, and that's something I've heard from like other people, detectives and investigators. And it wasn't until last year that I had heard the story of why you started um, Private Investigations for the Missing. And it wasn't until last year that I had heard of Brianna's story. So I appreciate you coming on to talk about both of these things because I think you know, giving voice to your daughter's story and also what you're trying to accomplish for other families is really important. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I was curious about, you know, we we had talked before about the idea that there are parts of Brianna that you want to keep to yourself, sort of because that's a part of what you have sort of left of her. And I just want to see if there's anything that, you know, you're comfortable about sharing about her and what you remember about her and what she was like as a, as a person. Cause sometimes I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about um, people after a crime has happened to them, but we don't really talk about the way they lived. Right. Yeah. Well, from the time Brianna was very little, uh, she was very, very in, independent, you know, uh, wanted to uh, kind of do things. Uh, I remember like when she was a just just a kid, uh, probably, you know, she would say, you know, she wanted to do something. If there was something going on, she would say, be do it, be do it. You know, it's like yeah, <laughs> we wanted to get involved and do it. So, you know, she was always a always that kind of kid that was just, you know, nice to be around. Uh, you know, we, we played games and I remember, uh, you know, dancing with her, with her feet on my feet, uh, you know, as we got a little older and, and there was a lot of just wonderful childhood memories that I have of her. But, uh, she was, I mean, one of the other childhood memories, we had a large, large pasture, uh, with a nice hill and we were sledding one day and, you know, all of a sudden she says, you know, Brigo or, or something like that. And boom, she was down the hill by herself. And there was a fence down at the bottom of the hill. So it was like panic situation to try to get down there before she hit the fence. But, <laughs> and you're like, that's yeah. not supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But. That's really interesting because rarely do you see the kid jump on the bike and just go without mom, yeah. <laughs> mom and dad, or jump on the sled. That's that's the kind of uh, you know uh, kind of person she was, and uh, you know she very smart, very quickly uh, learned to stick up for the underdog. Uh, mm. That kind of went through. Uh, you know, all her school years and young years, boy, if there was somebody getting picked on or wasn't treated right, uh, she was the first one to speak up for them. Yeah, and sounds like a good friend to have. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. There's always inevitably, I think, that that one person school that you can really count on, you know, if you're the guy with the funny glasses or, you know, the person that people pick on who's always going to have your back. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's kind of cool, uh, cool way to way to think of her. And for you, was Brianna? This is something I don't know. Was she an only child? No, no. Uh, we we have a son also, and he okay. was uh, oh six years older than Brianna. Oh wow! Okay, so a really b- big brother. Yeah, he was a big brother. Yeah, the um. One of the things that I was just sort of also wondering about from your perspective, you know, what was it, it, you know, as your kids grow and become independent and you're proud of them, I imagine for like every parent, certainly being in the position of my partner or my ex-partner has children, and I certainly feel this way as they're like headed off to high school when they, their first day of school um, all these, all these different moments in life when they head off to college, there's this sort of like fear, right? <laughs> this fear as a parent that they're going out into the, to the world, and and I, I, I know as a as a parent, it's just difficult to let go of your kids at any um, particular particular moment. But um, you know, I was just curious for you. I she was living independently. She was out on her own. Did in terms of just thinking about her life and her future and what what was next to her, did did you have positive hopes for that, fears for that, or anything along those lines? Oh yes, I mean she was. Uh, I mean we lived in a kind of a an unusual situation where we were right on the uh, right on the line between like school districts, and uh, she she went to one school and. Uh, she had friends, she made friends, uh, but, uh, you know, I think. So your neighborhood had kids from both schools? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, she just was, I think that, that bit of like sticking up for herself and, and, and sticking up, especially for other people, even more so than herself, you know, it just, just got, sometimes that got in the way, uh, you know, young teenage girls, I mean. You know, being the father, I didn't pay quite as much attention to that aspects of her life as I should have. But, you know, she she definitely, you know, some I think some of the girls were jealous of her mm. and things. And she had interactions that, uh, you know, caused her to be unhappy or different things like that. But that were difficult. Yeah. And we we raised her from the from the beginning. Uh, Brianna was she was always a reader and like, like things like that. And, uh, when we moved up to the place that we were living, when she disappeared, 
I was what they call back to the lander at the time. Ah. And uh, you, got, you guys had moved there to sort of get get into nature and get into yes, and and just the whole the whole kind of the the whole kind of the back to the lander experience. I got interested in making my own electricity and things like that. Oh wow! So we we lived you know a mile in the woods, and so we you know we just did things differently. I mean, we had solar power and water power charge oh, batteries cool. and converted it into 112. So it wasn't like we were living like we were in the 1800s or something. Okay. <laughs> you but, still drove cars. Oh, and- sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you still did stuff like that, but yet, you know, and so, you know, we didn't have like, we didn't have like television in that. We had a television in the house, but we would just use it to, because we obviously didn't have cable. Or anything like that. So we would usually just use it to like uh, rent movies or something like that on the weekend. Mm. It's kind of a thing. So uh, kind of as a consequence of that, I mean, she really wasn't raised in the television area and she would spend a lot of time reading. What kind of books did she like? Uh, I'm an avid reader myself. It was it was a really and so am I. And I think she kind of got it from me. Uh, there was a lot of like different mysteries and and uh fiction genre that she would kind of drift around that uh, i'm trying to think there was a specific writer that she read a lot of i think it was ann rand but i'm not sure mm. uh, ann rule maybe mm, ann rule? no 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 and yeah. i can't think that there was ann- always books in her hand of different types and you know obviously you know I encourage that because I'm a reader. Yeah. The, um, did she did she ever tell you guys or talk about what she wanted to do, you know, when she grew up in terms of like career or life or uh not not in any real long term sense, no. Right. She had ideas in her head, but not necessarily Yeah, she had ideas and, and when she transferred over to the other school where you know it was uh, obviously you know we we wanted her to go to college. And that was kind of the, that was the goal for us to see her get into college. And and then I just knew she would take it, you know, and take it in with her personality. She would get somewhere. Yeah. She'd figure something out. She'd push her way through. Yeah. What was, I, I was wondering, you know, what was it like for you or you and your wife when you found out, I don't know whether you got a call or the police came to your door. What was it like to find out that she was missing? Well, it kind of came in two stages. Initially, what had happened, I mean, she she decided one day that she was going to go up and li- go out and live with one of her friends or something. And, you know, I, I know from, from this day and age, you, you would, a lot of people hear that as being ridiculous, but I mean... I moved out of the house at uh, 17 also oh, yeah. and lived yeah. in my own and did, did the thing. And there wasn't really, you know, there isn't really much you can do to stop somebody who wants to do that by the time they hit 17. So something, obviously not something that her mother and I liked, but she would just kind of skip around to different friends' houses and kind of live there and hang out. And I, I realized, you know, in retrospect, I kind of looked at it. I mean, we, we were living a very isolated life. For her right and, and there's that pull right the pull for all the other years. kids yeah, yeah. the young girl and yeah so 
It's interesting you say that some people find it odd, but just having in my day job career, working with a lot of kids and their families who are that age, 16, 17, you know, to your point, there's very little that a parent can do once everything you do to kind of stop something like that just pulls you away from your child even more. And you're probably not going to be successful anyway. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I don't find it odd, at least to me. And, and in some circumstances, when I'm working with families, when parents sort of let go of trying to control the out, their relationships become even better. And the outcomes too. So yeah, so that's interesting. And she was working too, right? I my understanding she was working as a dishwasher. She was going to school and getting her GED. If her it seemed like her life was on track. You were saying the news came in two stages. Yes. Um what happened was I mean she was living she would stay in contact with us. Uh this is pre cell phone days really too. Mm. So, you know, it's not like we all had phones, but uh, she would kind of stay in contact with us when we'd hear from her every few days or maybe a week. And she was staying with a friend and we knew where she was staying. And when she left, the night she disappeared and they found her car was a Friday night. And her friend had gone away for the weekend to visit her mother. So she had left a note for a friend. Hey, I'll be back uh, after work. And so when the friend got back to her house, she had noticed that Brianna had not ever returned there. So she called us and said, hey, you know, Brianna didn't come back and uh, we haven't, you know, I haven't seen her. Uh, Do you know where she is? Well, initially, when when I got that call, we were worried, but we didn't know that no one had found the car. Right. And she could have been at another friend's house. Absolutely. Gone out with her colleagues. Yeah. So after we made phone calls to, you know, some of her friends or, you know, places that people like that where she had stayed and and nobody knew nothing. At that point, we got really scared. Mm -hmm. And when we went to the police station and it just so happened, the, the police officer that had, police officer that had been to the car was in the police station that morning. And uh, he called us back into the back room and he pulled out this picture of the car that's obviously been all over the internet now bashed into the side of that building. Mm-hmm. This is this, you know, is this Brianna's car. And about that time, you know, I mean, that's the shit hit the fan really, you know? Yeah. The, um, so it was, if I understand it right, it was almost just by luck that, you happened to be in the same room as the officer was there. You weren't reporting it to him, or well, we went to the main the main desk and were reporting it. And the officer happened to be there, not really at wow. the desk, but he was in the back listening, and uh, he called us back. Because I, I would imagine for the officers, finding an abandoned car isn't necessarily normally a giant sign of concern, but it was really the confluence of those two moments coming together that raised the the bigger concern. The um you know that picture that you mentioned of the car being backed into backed into the abandoned wooden house, did that really concern you when you saw that picture? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just for me right away. It's it's something is terribly, terribly wrong here. Yeah. You know, There's something. Odd it wasn't like it. the car ran off the road, or you know, was just even found along the road. Maybe a quick running or something like that. When I saw the car backed into that house, yeah, I got really scared and you know, really upset. Where did it? Where does it go from? There, at least in this case, and and I'll ask you about other missing persons cases since you're involved in it, but once you make that identification of the car and now the officer no longer knows she's or knows she hasn't been seen and you're there reporting, do they put a bunch of officers on it? Is it just that one officer? How do, how did they respond in that moment? Well, the, resp- the response initially from them was, oh, she's – actually, I was referred at that point. That was just a, a roadside trooper that I talked to, and uh, I was referred to a lieutenant at the base, and he – we spoke to him, and he, he gave us this line of, uh, oh, well, you know, 90% of these kids run away, and, and she'll probably turn up again in a few days, and, you know uh, – kind of a bunch of other excuses of, you know, we'll, we'll put a, you know, APB out on, you know, her and different mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that was about where it went. It just, yeah. And he had seen the picture itself. You know, I don't really know that for a fact. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, cause, cause, you know, one of the things I've always wondered about missing persons cases when, You know, it's a young child who disappears, or it's an elderly person, or somebody who has a medical issue. We automatically uh, kind of assign those as critical missing persons cases, and lots of resources get thrown at them. But I've always wondered, like, whether we're missing something in the sense that, you know, I think about something like a person goes missing. And, you know, they call their grandchild every day normally, and they don't fit that pattern all of a sudden. Or there's a car like Brianna's car. That there are these other signs that could tell us that some something is critical, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, we, we expressed to the officer that something is really, really wrong here. And, you know, he just kind of blew it off. How did it eventually, how did they, how did they, so, so one of the things I imagine in missing persons cases, it's really important to, to, uh, you know, they have that show about murders, the first 48 hours, but I would imagine the first hours after a person goes missing are super important. How long did it take the police to really engage and throw more resources at it? Uh, I would say it took about a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And what did you guys do during that week? I can't imagine what a, a week would be like where you didn't know where your child is. Well, my, my son and I, uh, we, we went out looking. We went out from around where the car was and, you know, made, made a lot of big circles and physically looked for her or some evidence of any kind. And then uh, we went out and immediately talked to uh, anybody that we could that knew her and, you know, had 
talked to them and said, you know, where, and I went up to where she worked, the Black Lantern Inn, and I talked to them. And, uh, you know, it's, and, and I was just finding nothing. Nobody seemed to know anything. And I remember one incident where when I went up to the Black Lantern Inn and I have to, the people, all people were there and they, they spoke to me when they were very frankly, and they told me the first story of where they, when they last seen her and everything. And, and, uh, I asked about the people that stayed there and I asked the owners, can I have your, can I have your telephone list of everybody that's made a phone call in and out of there? And they said, they'd be happy to get that for me. And, uh, pretty quickly they did within about a day or so. And, uh, so in a weird way, and this is before the police have spoken to any of these people in a weird way, you're really running the investigation at first. Yeah. The well, you're, you're going to look for your daughter. You know, there's, there's nobody yeah. can kind of hold you back from that. Uh, right. So right. that's, that's what we did. Wow. And what was it that caused about a weekend for the investigators and the police to jump in it? Was it just the amount of time they have this number in their head that tells them? No, I, I it hit the news too. Okay. That causes, so that that causes them to, you know, you, you can't just tell a news interview, you know, interview or, you know, oh, we're just not doing nothing. You know, mm -hmm. they got to do mm -hmm. something. So, right. Uh, was that, was that sort of a deliberate push on your part to, or family or others to just sort of, or I learned how to manipulate the media. <laughs> you know, yes. It might as well operate to your advantage. Well, I, it was a, it was a learning curve, but yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because, the, um, frankly, it motivates them. You know, yeah, it's right, right. And then, you know, then it just kind of blew up. Uh, you know, we had us from class kids. We, they, once it kind of hit the media, we, I got a phone call from class kids to search and they sent a professional searcher up to organize a search. And of course, that guy knew how to manipulate the media better than I did. You know, what's what, class kids? Uh, they, that's a foundation started by a guy named Mark Class, whose daughter was murdered. Oh, polyclass. Polyclass, yes. But he had a full-time search guy named Brad who would come go around the country and help form searches, large searches, like 100 people. He would get volunteers and knew how to like generate the community through media and set that stuff up and uh, search groups up and things like that. So that generated a... Now, unfortunately, it didn't generate anything that ended up being of value, but it certainly eliminated a lot of areas of physically people searching and looking for evidence and things like that. So, and then at the same time, about you know a month before that, when that hit the news, then the case of Maura Murray being missing over in mm. was all. The How far away was that? Near you all? Or uh, not really. It was probably. I think it's like ninety miles. Okay. Okay. But so it, cl close, but not too close. Yes, but it was it was close enough that you know the media, you know, and you know it was kind of it was a, just a weird situation. You know, two young girls they found the car, they didn't find the girls. You know, mm. and it was just enough coincidence, and that that just kind of blew all up too. And, it just expanded. Yeah, I was curious what your thoughts are and thinking about that. You know, the 
you have the she's missing the friends called you you have the car which my understanding is it got towed by the police after after people alerted to them how odd it was yes um and then you have this week where there's not much happening on the investigative side but you guys are looking around and doing things. Do you think there was something lost in that period, in that week? And by that, I mean like lost opportunities or evidence or something that looking back, you wish they had done. Yes. Yes. Most definitely. What, what are the, yeah. What are those things? For you? Well, pe- people's memories, you know, when they're fresh, they're fresh. So, you know, you, you lose any opportunity in there you lose the opportunity to really seriously look over the site of where the car was and glean anything you can from that. You know, the, the, the car itself, I remember where they towed it. We found out where they towed it. My son and I went up there and it was like, well, nobody had any keys and nobody had been in the trunk. So we ended up with pry bars and crowbars and opened that trunk up because it's like, are you kidding me? You know, no one had checked it. Right. They just had it towed. To the toad. Oh wow! So you would think that would be one of the first things you would do. Yeah. I mean, as morbid as it is, yeah. They treated it like they would find any other car off the road. You know, just tow it. Like lost property. Yep. Basically. And yeah. if it wasn't for the guys that uh, stopped that Saturday morning and took pictures, because they found it to be so bizarre that they stopped and took pictures, you know, we wouldn't have any of that. Were those just people passing by? Yes. Not locals? Just people who, wow. Well, there's a large ski area up there called Jay Peak. And Montgomery, Vermont is a, uh, uh, I I would call it, I guess, a ski town. You know, it's kind of a tourist town. Little village hamlet, but it's the base of Jay Peak. And uh, so they were staying at a, renting a house in one area and they had to drive by the car in order to get the JP to ski. And so they stopped. And so that's where, quite frankly, most of this, any evidence that was found outside the car or something like that came from those guys' pictures and stuff. Yep. Oh, really? So yep. they were, it's their pictures. Their pictures are the ones that we've seen. Their pictures. Yes. Like the things that they mentioned. I know they mentioned like a, a necklace or a bracelet, and they mentioned some loose change. That wasn't the police. That were the people who stopped to notice that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so that's all really derived. Did they ever recover that stuff that the, that was found? The police? Or was that... Uh, yeah, because when the police came, I think he found the stuff, some of the stuff, and just busted oh. it into the car. But they're the ones that oh. documented it because they were there before the police were. So you would have never known where it was. So that's it, it's really interesting because the um, you know I I have a friend who's a detective who was actually recent on a podcast, and she was saying that every time she gets a missing persons report because she has. I think five or six really big cases that started with missing persons cases, but she really believes they're not missing because they haven't shown up and there's no, you know, Mm -hmm. no, no evidence of them, you know, using their telephone or credit cards or social security numbers or anything like that. But she says that every time she gets a missing persons report, 
it throws her into a bit of a panic because she knows that, you know, it's going to be the next 12 to 24 hours where the vast majority of the memories and the evidence are there. And, and so I'm curious, like if investigators know that, why do you think the reaction, is it, is it resources or is it something else that causes the reaction to be more muted? Well, I think I've learned even working some with the foundation, I think the police rely heavily uh, on statistics to guide their actions. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a, a lot of people that go missing for various reasons. There's a lot of reasons why cars are found on the road. The great majority of cases when people go missing, they're okay. Right. And then there's a it, it's a fairly small percentage of all the people that go missing, you know, wind up into cases like my daughter's. So it's just sort of the odds tell them this person's going to show up before we ever find them. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that sort of complicates their ability to respond to every missing person's case. Yeah. Um, so treat it with the same you know, the same thing they would. They they have to come to the conclusion that foul play was involved before they really kind of jack the resources up. Yes. Yeah. Is there, outside of that, do you think there's anything that law enforcement, you know, in thinking about best practices and approaches to missing persons case, is there anything that you think they could do differently? Or is it just, do you think, comes down to resources? Uh yeah, I think certainly they could, they could do some things differently. Resources are a huge part of it. There's no doubt about it. I think they could do a better job of, to start with, better training to be more alert in cases similar to my daughter's. Uh, mm. to, to, let's just say, do their initial investigation, maybe assuming the worst rather than assuming the best and try to do it a little more thoroughly as far as evidence as their possible crime scenes. The other thing that they certainly uh, could do a better job with, and this is nationwide, and I, I don't want to get into a police bashing thing because I have a lot of right. respect for the police and what they do. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the interactions with the initial interactions with the families, uh, I think should certainly, certainly some improvements. You know, in terms of sort of the just listening and collecting details and, you know. Yeah, or maybe even find someone uh, a little more kind of in, you know, have an officer trained specifically to deal with families and to be able to sit down with the families and go through them when they're in that highly emotional state in order to right. clean, as, clean as much as they can and also to help them help them interact with families going forward. Uh, one of the things that that we do as an organization, and I've personally done too, is, is when we reach out to help a family, you know, I try to educate the families a little bit and how to get, how to interact with police. You know, that's interesting. That, that topic has come up for me a couple times before I had um, a guest who, whose cousin disappeared. She was eventually found murdered. And one of the things that she said is that one of the most important things to collaborating 
with law enforcement is to not become a pain, to become helpful to them. And one of the things, she's a really emotional person herself, she said, one of the hardest things is not to be a pain because I'm always going to be more vested in this than anyone else. They've got hundreds of cases. I have one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I always I thought that was really interesting that there's a certain level of diplomacy or helpfulness that can probably move a case along. It's a fine line, really. You kind of work a fine line. You don't want to I mean, I remember the initial person that I had to deal with, the lieutenant, you know, I mean, you know, he told me, well, the less time I have listening to you or meeting with you is more time we have in trying to find your daughter. And, you know, oh, wow. of course, I forget how what I called him at that point, but we wouldn't want to mention it here anyhow. But yeah, you got to kind of walk a fine line because you know what? If you don't do anything, it's too easy for them to forget and push it to the back when they have other stuff coming up on a, a fresh, fresh basis. So you've got to be kind of on the edge of being a pain. But not too far. Not too far. Yeah. Too far. <laughs> one of, <laughs> one no, of the, right, which can be a challenge for me at times, I think. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know, but yeah, it, it is. It's a fine line and you got to try to walk it with them. And, you know, one of the things I encourage to do now, we're working usually with colder cases, but, you know, is at the, at the start with setting up a regular appointment system with whoever the investigator is. Mm. And that has been helpful in the sense that it kind of puts the police in a situation where, okay, let's just say it's a monthly appointment. Well, it's very embarrassing for for her or him to come to you as the family and say, well, you know, we didn't know anything on your case this month. Yeah, there's nothing that has. So it creates some measure of accountability while i imagine at the same time at least they know when to expect it they're not waiting for the random call from you right and going yeah yeah so that's where i encourage him to get you know get it get a you know and and get where you can have good conversations with them and and develop some sort of rapport with them yeah you know when i was a you know rare when i was a reporter we rarely covered um missing persons cases although there were some But one of the things that always sort of struck me when we were covering missing persons cases, and usually it was because someone had been missing for for a while, was, you know, and I I probably covered hundreds of murders. You know, I have sat in the living room, family room, step with, you know, so many victims, uh, family members, victims of murder. But there was a... Something very different about the people whose loved ones were missing, particularly the colder cases that I covered. And I think it's easy to think that murder is worse, but is there something tougher in some way for you, for other families in the position of being missing? Because I know you talk on your, your website about this idea of not having closure, yeah, not knowing what happened. I don't know what I don't even like the word closure, although I use it because I don't know it when a loved one is murdered. You know, I mean, yeah, you have you have a loved one that's there and you have a funeral service and you have various things that our culture does does to bring about some kind of closure. And I, I don't know if that works for everyone, but I know for 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 missing people. 
it's just a really, really hard thing not knowing. And you end up, you know, you spend a lot of time ruminating and running thoughts through their heads, the what ifs, what can, you know, what, where, what could have happened? Where could she be? Uh, is it this scenario? Is it that scenario? And, you know, I still do some of that 20 years later. Even, wow. even though I've come to the conclusion that, you know, it's, and then there's the other thing is you don't get the, you know, you don't get this, the, the societal and, you know, the societal norms of closure. Right. There's no funeral. There's no, no funerals. Funeral. There's, yeah. And How do people offer condolences even? Like, what do they say? Like, I don't, I wouldn't even know, you know. If I had been friends with you during the time, I wouldn't even know what words to use because, yeah, I just wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, even today when, when people, I mean, I don't talk about it much in my family if they, unless they ask my extended family. Uh, I will talk to them. And, and, but, you know, when, when someone, someone else, a friend or something – you know, happens to ask me, you know, hey, have you know, have you, have you heard any news uh, about your daughter or anything or any progress or anything like that? So it's it's kind of a two, it's twofold. One thing is you're glad that they actually remember her and have concern. Mm. And but on the other sense, then, you know, you kind of have to say, well, you know, no, I haven't. And, you know, it's so it's 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 not. It's not anything that – it's something that when someone dies, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Right. Because there's some element of, like, appreciation that people still care and some amount of pain in being reminded that this wound is still open. Yes. So, and I've had people that, that I've loved and passed away. You know, I, I've lost both my parents at a fairly – you know, or at least my father at a fairly young age. and. My mother sometimes later, but I mean, yeah, the people that you've loved that have passed on, you can make jokes about and, you know, laugh about funny things that may have happened in their life. And, you know, the, the, the good times you've had with them and all that, but with Brianna just being missing, that's a little tougher to do. Yeah. Which sort of leads me to, uh, uh, you know, the question of why, like we, people experience all sorts of tragedies and difficult moments. And I think it's a blessing sometimes when you're able to take your tragedy and turn it into something good for other people. But I was curious, what led you to decide to not, not be on the broader sidelines and start private investigations for the missing? Well, it took a long time yeah, uh, for me to get to that point, but in different interactions and that I had with, you know, other families and just seeing kind of, I try not to watch that too much of that stuff about other cases and things. I do some, uh, not much, but mm -hmm. I've just seen, it, it became crystal clear to me that so many people are in, they have, don't have the resources. They don't have the knowledge. They don't know how to kind of do anything to find their loved one. And that they needed mm. that kind of help. And so I kind of made up my mind when I was talking to my investigator that has been with me since 2006, 
private investigators helped me immensely. You know that it was it just had to do something, and and I guess my thoughts were is that you have to. My deeper thoughts were is you know there's there's some evil that's happened around Brianna's disappearance, and that I want to try to overcome that with good, the best that I can do. And mm. when starting private investigations for the missing was a way for me to do that. Oh, that makes sense. So you brought so that would be about two years or a year and a half or something like that. After Brianna disappeared, you brought a private investigator on the case. What what caused you to do that? Uh, he found me, sort of. <laughs> okay. All right. uh, I was uh, posting. Uh, I travel. I do. I have some sales work that I do for part of my living. And uh, I was traveling New York Thruway, and I was putting up posters of Brianna at a rest stops there. At the time, they had a place for posters. So uh, he happened to be traveling the Thruway at some point not too long afterwards and he saw one of the posters and it tugged at his heart so he got in contact with me and uh, you know i was not too receptive you know at the time oh really oh, yeah. was your no, I wasn't. you're like go away <laughs> uh, well i had i've had so many people come up in that meantime it's like well and, and here's how the statement that would tell me everything you know about brianna and the case and i could solve this and it you know and once they hear about it, you know, you don't usually hear from them again. So um, I was. Are these investigators? Yes. Or yeah, like private PIs or, really? or just people that thought that they, you know, knew some magic. Maybe they watched, thought they watched enough TV shows that they knew how to figure stuff out. I don't know. But, yeah. And I imagine it must be tiring at some point, just dumping it all. Because you as a family member probably have no idea what a qualified private investigator for a missing person's case is that's correct and that's another thing that we needed to solve through the foundation you know we were going to get them people that knew how to handle the investigation and had the right mindset to to jump into something like this and that's not all private investigators by any means that's a very small subset well, and I imagine it wouldn't even be all law enforcement officers you know you think about uh, a narcotics detective investigating a murder probably isn't the best combo or or other things along those lines that not yeah yeah there's probably a very very sort of specialized set of skills in missing persons cases yeah we have a mix yeah. a, a good mix of them uh part of them are retired law enforcement guys it's, it's very often they retire and they'll go into like a private investigator type of an occupation but uh, those guys and then some just retired guys that kind of want to you know they they want to keep their hand in it and uh those guys are really experienced and so they've been good investigators for us too so how did you get from sort of the using utilizing the private investigator to deciding to sort of like expand this well let me let me jump back for a second and ask another question what kinds of things did your private investigator do that may have either been different or advanced things? Were they able to, like, I'm, I'm just curious about like thinking about it from the perspective of a family member and why you'd bring a private investigator onto the case when police are already doing it. What, what's the advantage and were there some sort of positive things for Brianna's case that happened by you having a, 
private investigator on the case? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll just step back a little bit with you. What I found with dealing with police and law enforcement in general is uh, when someone goes missing, the law enforcement agencies that are good and competent, and there are many of them throughout the country, once they get on an investigation, they will work it. You know, they will go out, maybe talk to friends, talk to people, talk to maybe who last saw her. Sort of the same thing they would do in a murder investigation, I would say similar. And after that point, kind of, after they can't get any direct, easy lead that brings them somewhere, then it kind of, at, at that point, it, it goes into what I call the reactionary stage, where mm. they're done going out initiatively on their own. They, you know, they, they, if somebody comes in and walks in and says, Hey, I have this information on this person, uh, most of them will certainly work on it, but they just go so to it's that the idea of one stage. Once they lose direction on the case and have no direction, it becomes much more about what comes in than what they're proactively. Right. And at that point, it's it, a, a private investigator. I mean, a good private investigator is going to be proactive. He's going to go out and he's going to talk to people that the police have not talked to, maybe. Or he's going to talk to maybe the some people, but uh, the people are willing to give a private investigator a lot of information that they're not going to give to a police. Mm. It's a simple fact. Yeah. Uh, especially if they're if they have some unseedy or unsavory portion of their lives, they don't want to tell anything to the cops. One, they have an adversarial relationship with the cops, anyhow, a lot of them. Already. And right. they're certainly not going to say anything. But for someone that's not going to arrest them or has no power over them that way, they're often willing to share information with. So, mm -hmm. um, and my investigator, he spent a lot of time doing just that sort of work, talking to people, doing interviews. Uh, there was a tremendous rumor mill that developed around uh, Brianna being missing. And that's been a huge impediment to any kind of real facts. And so it's, I don't know if you've ever looked Because you're getting a lot of, you heard, you heard, I heard. Yes. Kind of. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if you've ever lived in a small town or in rural. Uh, rural I have. Area. Well, then you know a little <laughs> bit about what I'm talking about. Okay? You know? Everybody's got a story about everything. And everybody and can't trust any of it. Everything. Oh, yeah. Right. No, so, that's prevent, you know, so just sorting through that huge, huge mess that resulted from all that. You know, he, he has, uh, you know, he has helped me quite a bit. Being able to sort of exclude things and, and, yes. and narrow down, like, when you say help, like, what is it, you know, I know Brianna's case is not solved, but when you think of help, there's like the part of help that is like actually moving the ball forward on the case. But then there's probably also a part of help, like what you were talking about before, that lets you erase some of those things that you worry about or or eliminate certain options that I, I i imagine has like an emotional benefit for families too in addition to to the practical and yeah the biggest effect emotional benefit in in my mind is is knowing someone's out there 
looking and trying to find her. And that has helped a lot. Families that we help also have gained that. Uh, you know, when when the when the cops essentially quit looking to know that someone else out there that is is taking a shot at it and going to uh, go out and see if they can't find or talk to this one or talk to that one. And just the fact that someone's working on something is, is a tremendous emotional boost. Helps them get up the next day and, you know, keep going forward with their lives. One of the things I was curious about, and this might be a TV misconception in my head, so fair warning on this one. Okay. But <laughs> one of the things I was wondering about is what's the relationship between law enforcement and private investigators like? Because I would imagine, you know, part of me says, well, if they're former law enforcement officers, they may be able to establish good relationships, but it could also be adversarial in the sense that, you know, there are lots of egos involved in things like investigating things or solving any kind of puzzle. Um, how do you, how do you manage the relationship between the private investigators and law enforcement or is my misconception or is my conception wrong? Well, it varies somewhat from one law enforcement agency to the next. We've, we've had, I would say in a majority of situations, we, we have my, my chief investigator of the foundation is a man named Lou Barry and been in law enforcement his whole life. He is just very good at reaching out to, and that is uh, when we first get involved in a case, that is often, other than learning the background, that is often one of the first steps we take is he contacts law enforcement and he often speaks to the investigator and it's, it just breaks that barrier from one, one law enforcement aid person to the next. There's a certain level of trust and competency that, hey, we're yeah. a competent organization. We're going to send out a guide. This is what we're going to do. And, you know, we would appreciate your help or cooperation or whatever. And because ultimately, we understand, and law enforcement understands, is, I mean, once we've accumulated whatever information we accumulate on these cases, uh, we don't have the power of the state. That all has right. to go to law enforcement. Right. And... You know, it's it's sort of like we we all know the rules here of how things go, and it's been it's it's gone to you know where they're just relieved. Oh my gosh, we just you know we only have so many officers. We have we don't have time to do some of this stuff. We would just love to have you guys come in and work do some work on this. Oh wow! So it's been very very good to to yes, we'll help you out. You know, we'll uh, we'll share some of our uh, some of our information you know, to try to like give you a, uh, at least a summary of the case or something. And, you know, just, and, and then there's some law enforcement groups where are essentially non-cooperative. Can you still pursue those cases where they are? We do, but we try not to because it makes it really, really hard. Difficult. So your ideal situation is to have a. We don't screen out a case. We, we don't screen out a case based on that. Okay. But we really try hard to get it on some level. Yeah. One of the things I was curious about, um, you had given me some uh, some data on on uh, on some of your work last year, and I was I'm curious both about the process and then also 
it kind of struck me the number of requests that you had received. And I'm wondering about, like, I think it had said that in 2023, you'd received, was it 181 requests? And how do do people find you and what is the process like for them when they knock on your door? Most people find us through through our website, investigationsforthemissing.org. And if you put any kind of search in with private eyes or missing or anything like that, we, we come up on the first page. <laughs> mm. So people contact us. Uh, we also have a maintain a, uh, a toll-free number. They can call us. and But they contact us, and we have a form that we have, and they fill out, and it gives us information about about their loved one and and the case that uh, enough case details that we kind of know how to handle it. And then uh, the chief investigator and I both look at these cases and then we make a determination of whether they fit into the criteria of what we're going to do. Are we going to assign a PI? Are we going to just background check the person? you know, and it kind of varies to the circumstances. Right. Uh, we've been pretty successful at a lot of cases in the backtracking or backchecking a person. We have some really good sites. Database. Oh, yeah. We have some stuff we're life. not going to talk about here. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And we have some help from some people that some time to time that will help us out, too, that we're not going to talk about here either. <laughs> but we can, can often find people. And, uh, you know, people. Uh, to the extent of, you know, this is this is their they are alive. This is their last location. You know, a lot of times we'll find that a lot of these people have left and don't want to have anything to do with their families anymore. Mm. Uh, sometimes they left. Maybe they ran away at sixteen, seventeen, but they don't. You know, and we don't know what all is going on in the families. You know, right. they might have perfectly legitimate reasons for not uh, not wanting to. But we can, you know, let the families know, yes, they are alive and, you know, they have your con. When we can actually reach the person that's missing, you know, we will sometimes give them contact number for the families. And then if they're an adult, you know, that's all we can do. We're done. Do you take both warm cases and very cold cases? Are there are there any sort of really old cases you guys have? We take some really old cases. We take some cases back into the 1980s. Oh, wow. Okay. We do not usually involve ourselves in anything that's too fresh. Because if right. we, until law enforcement goes into that uh, reactive stage that we discussed earlier, we, we try not to get too involved. Are any cases that stand out to you as uh, success stories from your perspective? We've had many, many successes in the case of finding someone through database searches and things like that. We've had a, a very successful case. A guy worked a long time, and we believe that uh, that person or persons is still alive, but they okay. were presumed to be uh, murdered. And wow! So, and that was another case where at that point we had to we had to stop, but it was a very successful case for us. Uh, right, because that's still a win for the loved ones, even if they. Yeah. Even if they don't necessarily reconnect with the person. Just We've had know. cases where, you know, it, it, you know, a body has turned up 
uh, you know, so mm-hmm. yeah, it, they're tough cases. They're just tough cases to work. They really are for the people that are working them. What are, what are some of those criteria that you were talking about for, uh, a case being accepted? So you, you mentioned you're not going to take something that's too recent, I imagine there's some people who hand in forms and then <laughs> never get back to you. Oh, absolutely. That happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, one of the criteria is like, if it's recent, I mean, that case doesn't disappear for us. It goes into our filing system, you know, at a later point, we'll, we take, we might want to take a look at that in certain cases and see if we can involve ourselves. We don't take cases where there's, we insist on a family member that is willing to be a spokesperson or work with us as a part of the package deal. Cause we do get requests from friends and things like that. Mm. Oh, I'm a friend of this, a friend of this person. So, and we kind of insist on that they be a family member because you know, the object is we want to help the families. We, uh, we obviously want to help the friends too, but you know, that's, that's a criteria. We don't take any overseas cases. We just can't handle that. Child custody, I imagine. Yes, child child custody. Anything involves just child custody or things like that. We avoid that. But other than that, we—I mean—we will take any case that's any case that it does not contain those things. We look at seriously, and we will help the person where we can. We've had trouble at different times in really, really rural areas. Of actually finding an investigator, because uh, you all will hire the investigators who are working the yes, we do. Case yeah, they are. They they are. They're contractors. They're not. You know, they're not employees mm-hmm. by any sense. But yeah, we will contract them. But sometimes, you know, when it's when it's you know nobody within a hundred miles or more, it gets a little difficult. Right, 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 right. I the um I can only yeah I can only imagine that in some sort of instances rural areas it would be just very you know I was recently talking to somebody about this like at you know very large like the Navajo Indian Reservation where there may only be a handful of investigators but that uh, and another person out in Washington State who is like the one investigator for the entire county vastness plays a role as well as, you know, population density, vastness. There are all these factors that increase or decrease the likelihood of being successful or whether something can be effectively investigated. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, there's, there's, there's underserved people in all parts of the country, but uh, particularly like the Indian reservations. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Terribly (laughs) underserved. Rural areas are uh, very underserved, uh, more so, I hate to say this, but more so in the South. Mm. Um, I, why, why the South? Well, I think it, it involves a lot of, uh, a lot of the South's law enforcement is still the county sheriff has a lot of power there mm. with very small police forces. So they're stretched quite thin and it seems like the a lot of the investigative services are left in the county sheriff's thing thing is the right word but within the county sheriff's authority to investigate and so those are cases where we have some problems with getting cooperation sometimes and then obviously urban areas right right 
the density, the yes. uh, yeah, engaging with the law enforcement. I'm okay, one of the things I'm curious about. You guys just started. You know, you're relatively young as an organization. 2018. You're taking on a lot of cases, but I'm curious from your perspective. What's your vision for the foundation? What's what's the ultimate goal? What would you like it to be like and be able to do? Well, ultimately, it's always been the same goal is to help as many people as we can. You know, it's just we can only help with what we get funding for, too. That's a limitation we have to consider because when we go into a case, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be paying that investigator in that case. You can't just do a little bit and say, well, that's enough. You know, we just most of our cases often evolve into a long term process. Uh, so it's a real commitment. Yeah. And so ultimately, I mean, I, I would love to have, you know, be able to help tens of thousands of people across this country and and build a huge, huge bank of investigators and and make a serious, serious dent in some of these cases. And a lot of the cases, you know, we've discovered too, I mean, it's just, they just weren't very well covered. Mm, so I, I feel in my heart and my gut that there's a lot of these cases that actually could be solved with someone that can put some time into it. That there's that opportunity yeah. there. One of the things when we were talking before, you said that uh, the organization does not fit into any particular niche when it comes to <laughs> grants and and other opportunities. How have you been able to raise money for it? And do you who are who are your donors? It's tough, <laughs> very tough. Uh, essentially, we exist on small donations. People that uh, you know listen to uh, some of the podcasts or have heard about us in different aspects and have just sort of picked up following us, mm. give us small donations, and you know we have a few large, large donation. I mean, a large donation for us, okay? A large one is probably like uh, you know three thousand oh, dollars. Wow. That's a huge donation for us. Wow. Well, most of the time, it's a hundred dollars or less. Wow. So you're really sort of, it's like a grass, almost like a grassroots effort, like yeah. small 25, 50, $100, $500. Um, how, how much does a private investigator cost in a day? Their services vary. Uh, mm -hmm. We pay them a agreed upon hourly rate, mm. which is usually about $75 an hour, which is a typical private investigator will probably make from 75 to 150 an hour. These these people that we have been able to contact have a heart for us, and they have mm. a heart for that person, and and just are are good good people, and they they do a lot of hard work. A lot of them do uh, quite a bit of it, quite a bit of it post bono pro bono for us, especially like their office time, some of the research time, some of this, and and you know obviously we have to cover their expenses. So there's something special for them about this these kinds of cases. And oh sure, yeah. With families, like they get they get caught up in it, caught up in yeah. the, you know they have they have the mission concept in their heads. A lot of them, and right. they work really hard on it. And uh, yeah, there's some something meaningful for them about being able to help people. Yes, I was wondering, you know, as we're 
wrapping up, just sort of like stepping back a little bit and thinking about what maybe your hopes and dreams are for families of the missing, you know, even, even sort of like what your hope for a resolution of Brianna's case would look like. Well, I hope, I hope for these people too, that resolution can find them some kind of peace about the situation. I'm not going to call it closure, but at least some level of peace that uh, helps them continue to enjoy life, be happy, and uh, and think of their loved one really, really fondly uh, without that stab of pain every time you think of them. You know, it's... In my own case, uh, with Brianna, I mean, my thoughts have kind of changed like over the years. I really, really wanted to early on, I really wanted to find out who did something to her and punish them for it. But it had, and, and that still is a, it's still a feeling in me, but the primary feeling is, is I, I would like to find her her remains and I would like to know what happened, but you know, at least at that point I would receive some sort of, uh, you know, of feeling that, you know, I, I had her and that, you know, had her with me. And, you know, that's, you know, when I pray about this issue, that's what I pray for that I can find her. Cause finding her is sort of a way of, bringing her home and you said like having her with you again mm -hmm. and you know i wanted to thank you before we wrap up because just thinking about what you were saying that concept of being able to bring her home to you again and the idea that you've really dedicated yourself to um doing the same thing for other families even though you haven't received that 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 yourself and um it's pretty powerful because i think a lot of people would run away from exposing themselves to similar situations if they hadn't found resolution and um i just wanted to see bruce if you have any sort of like closing thoughts or messages you you would want to send to law enforcement, families, or anyone else in particular? I guess, you know, for, for law enforcement, you know, it comes down to the individual person in law enforcement of how they, how they can deal with it. Certainly certain, you know, everybody, it, it's training or different things like that can certainly be helpful. Uh, I feel like most law enforcement people are, are good people. Uh, the way our system seems to work, you know, they are obviously asked to do the way more than they can possibly accomplish. Mm -hmm. So I have some sympathy for them uh, in that aspect. As far as families are concerned, a lot of the families that I have talked to and, and dealt with, there there is different ways where people deal with this in a family situation. And one of the ways is they just kind of ignore it the best they can. The other way is they create a fantasy 
that that person is somehow just going to miraculously, you know, walk back into their lives again, show up at the door one day. And, and I don't criticize that. I, I'm just saying that it's a, just a different way to cope with it. And then there's groups of family members like myself that kind of, I just call it the hard road. Hmm. It hurts to do this. It hurts to face that and to just keep doggedly going on in spite of one disappointment after another, uh, you know, in my daughter's case. But I admire the other, the family members that take on that courage and, and do yeah. that. But yeah. it's just very, there's three distinct ways that I've seen families handle it. Do you feel like you owe it to her in your particular case? Sure. Yeah. I'm her father. Fathers are, you know, one of the job of a father is to protect their child. And, you know, in some aspects, you know, I may have not done the best job at that. And maybe it has nothing to do with anything that happened. But this fact that I'm her father, you know, I it's my duty to protect her. But it's also not just duty as I love her and I will always love her. And I will continue to. You know, one way to show that I love her is to help other people. Yeah. Kind of like she did. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks, Bruce. I really appreciate it. If you would like to join us for more discussions with us and other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests, and live conversation with other listeners, you can also join us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Silver Linings Handbook. This is Jason Blair, and this is The Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you all again next week. <music>